Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see if those life-changing crackers changed our lives, and we'll introduce one of Stefan's favorite pixie foods, Pop-Tarts. Will the homemade version live up to the hype? We'll see. We'll also chat about the many and varied cooking classes you can take, no matter where in the world you live or where you want to visit. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. do you remember our discussion about super tasters back in episode 118 when you were reviewing the book by Ruth Reichel called Delicious? Oh, yes, indeed I do, because I posited the theory that the main character in that book was a super taster. Well, I recently ran across an article in The Guardian about synesthesia, and this is that amazing and fascinating neurological ability that about 2% of the population have in which they can smell or taste things that other people only absorb visually. So for example, when I say your name, Andrea, I think of your face maybe and your name and maybe how it's spelled out. But someone with this ability could maybe smell or taste the word Andrea. Isn't that fascinating? I have been fascinated by synesthesia ever since my daughter taught me about it. She read a young adult fiction book about a girl with this condition. And in the book, it talked about the most common form, which is when people see a color or a form or a shape associated with something like an individual letter of the alphabet. Yes. You know, so for example, you see the number seven and you uh, see yellow or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I had not heard about it with taste and words. So when you mentioned this to me, I looked it up. And the example that I found, it was so funny. I have to share it with you. And it's so funny. It described it just the way you explained it of taste being experienced when you hear certain words. And the example they gave was when you hear the word basketball, you might taste waffles. (laughs) Yes. And I believe that it is different based on individual. I mean, yes, with one person who has this and, you know, smells cotton candy when they think of or see the number six, you know, the next person might say, well, no, six tastes like popcorn or, you know, it's completely individually based. Yeah, no, you're correct about that. They, I read that they did have some commonality across a lot of people think the number one is red. Or it was the letter A. Anyway, whatever the first, okay. either the first letter of the alphabet or the first number is associated with red for a lot of people. But no, you're right. Other than that, it's an individual thing. Well, I just love that it's this blending of visual, auditory, and olfactory senses all together. And I will post the article from The Guardian, which is a firsthand experience of a woman who has this ability. And it's, it's just fascinating reading. I would like to remind our listeners what we're talking about when we talk about pixie foods. <laughs> so back in episode 79, I mentioned this term, which was created by a writer named Joe Posnowski. Yes. And his definition is any food substance that is highly pleasant to the taste as a child and tastes shockingly unpleasant once you become an adult. 
So back then, I know, Stefan, you said your pixie food was Pop-Tarts. It was. And I shared the Chef Boyardee mini raviolis. Yes. But so much fun, and I went back and reread these this morning, was we had posted in our Facebook group, Preheated, and asked people what their pixie foods were. And the comments made me laugh so hard, and I had to bring one particular one up that Craig reminded me of, where he said that Joe Posnowski, who created this term, also described what Pop-Tarts taste like as an adult, and he said, manila folders filled with jam. (laughs) Frosted. (laughs) Ooh, bonus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we had so much fun with this term both back in episode 79 on the Facebook group and I'm sure it will be continuing as you do sometimes run across those foods or have the reason to retaste them and you wonder what you were thinking back when you were a kid. I'm sure I'll revive that thread. I probably will use the same thread when I repost in the Facebook group because I don't want to lose any of those great responses. But I know we have a lot of new listeners who weren't with us back in June of 2018. So I'm hoping to That's true. get some new feedback on some pretty cool pixie foods. Oh my gosh, Andrea, was that a year ago? It was June 2018. Yep, yep. (gasps) Time flies when you are having fun on your podcast. Wow, that's incredible. Time flies. Well, Andrea, before we get to our homemade Pop-Tarts, we've got a review of our life-changing crackers. We made these as our bake-along this week, and they were from a website called mynewroots.org. I was lucky enough to have tasted these before I tackled baking them. They are absolutely chock full of All kinds of healthy things from sunflower seeds to chia seeds to sesame seeds to rolled oats. Never made crackers before. There were a few variations going on here. Andrea, how'd these turn out for you? Well, these turned out really, really well. I'm ready to say they are life-changing. Wow! (laughs) A couple of things I did with the ingredients, and if you haven't listened to last week's show, I'll just run through these real quickly. One of the ingredients is either four tablespoons of psyllium seed husks or three tablespoons of psyllium husk powder. Yes. I use the psyllium husk powder because that's what my grocery store had. Okay. And instead of a tablespoon of maple syrup, I used some hot honey that I have from Jacobson Salt Company. Oh, you've talked about that in the past. I really do love their hot honey. And my husband is the type that always likes a little bit of spice or zing and things. So when I see a place where I think, okay, they're doing the maple syrup for sweetness. It's only a tablespoon. Maybe it's also to sort of hold and bind stuff together. That's when I'll grab my hot honey. Okay. And I did use the ghee instead of the coconut oil because I happen to have some ghee on hand. And I think that does add a little bit of nuttiness flavor, which I don't know if you noticed this, but there are no nuts in this recipe. No, it's all seeds. Yeah, all seeds. So that's kind of nice for people who are nut-free. I made the rosemary, garlic, and smoked salt version. And so uh, the recipe is laid out so that you could do half a batch of the rosemary, garlic, and smoked salt, and another half a batch of the fig, anise, and black pepper. I didn't do the fig, anise, and black pepper, so I'm hoping maybe you did so you can tell us how that turned out. Yes, excellent. Coming up. Okay, perfect. On the smoked sea salt, I did, again, from Jacobson Salt Company in Portland, Oregon. I used their cherry wood smoked salt, which was a gift someone had given me. And oh, my gosh, it's so good. Yum. Okay, so on to the directions. So first thing is to combine all of the dry ingredients and stir them well in a large bowl. 
I want to say that if this is a time when you have not pulled out your kitchen scale, I strongly encourage you to do so because it's so easy with a kitchen scale. You just put the bowl on the scale. Yes. You hit the tear button and you then add the next however it is, eight or nine ingredients. And every time you just hit tear again and you don't have to use you know, three different measuring cups and four different measuring spoons. It, it's just so handy. So I'm going to stop you because I don't know this word you're using about your scale. Tear? Oh, that's what zeroes it out. I don't think I have this on my scale. Oh, you must. Well, I can zero it out, but there's nothing that says tear. How are you spelling this? This is a new word. Yeah, T-A-R-E. T-A-R-E. And I mean, I think you have to have it because, okay, so imagine you you put your bowl on uh-huh. the scale. Uh-huh. And so then it says your bowl, let's say it says your bowl weighs 500 grams. Yeah, right. How do you make it zero? I just put my like general button again. I hit that again. Oh, okay. Well, maybe your button. See, I have an on-off button. Yeah. I have a button to change the measurements from like grams to milliliters to ounces. Same. Yes. And then I have that tear button. So that tear button okay. always resets it to zero. Okay. You just sound like you might have a more advanced scale than than I do. But these <laughs> crackers are changing my life already because I've just learned a new word. So great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that little side side note. Thank you. Absolutely. So once you've got all those dry ingredients stirred about, you want to whisk in your maple syrup, or in my case, the hot honey, the oil, and the water together in a measuring cup, and then mix that well into the dry ingredients. And it instructs you until everything is completely soaked and dough becomes very thick. I used my hands and I watched the clock, and that took me about seven minutes to really get it all mixed in. Yeah, I agree. This took longer than I thought, but I think what was happening there is that the moisture, some of the seeds, especially the chias, what I was thinking, and the flax were absorbing that liquid. Yes. And becoming thick. And I think you want that to happen. You don't want to rush it because at first it is fairly liquidy. And I'm thinking, I think this is a problem. And lo and behold, same thing with me. Stir it. Be patient. It does thicken up really nicely. And it does say if the dough is too thick, add one or two teaspoons of water until it's manageable. But I did not have that problem. Nor did I. Uh Uh-uh. I did have a dilemma here or perhaps a mystery. This mixture smelled like cheese to me. (laughs) Did you notice that in yours? Synesthesia happening with your crackers. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did not smell cheese. Okay. Can't remember. Would have noted that, I think. So right. don't remember a cheesy. Maybe you were just envisioning what was going to be topping your life changing cracker in the future. <laughs> All right, listeners, let me know if I'm just completely bananas or if any of you also smelled a cheese scent. Jeez. That's all. I'm just going to leave it right there. Okay, I divided the dough in half. I did that even though I knew I was only making one variation just because I thought it would be easier to roll. Okay. And I did place it between two sheets of parchment, and I rolled it into a thin sheet. I did make a note here in my recipe, like, how thin is thin? Yeah. At this point, I sort of removed the word cracker from my head and went back to crisp bread, which is what it actually says in the recipe, you know? Okay. Because there's not measurements of the size of the rectangle or anything that you're going to roll out. And I just rolled, I had that same thought, Andrea, I'm like, am I going for half an inch? Am I going for a quarter of an inch? There comes a point where you just rolled it, there's no more parchment paper left. So I just started using that as my guide. And I thought I'm going to spread it out until I can't spread it out on this paper anymore and call it good. So that's what I did too. Yeah. And I used that same thing. I mean, unintentionally, I ended up using my parchment as a guide. Yeah. 
The recipe suggests then that you use the tip of a knife and score the dough into shapes you like, but I didn't do that. Okay. As I rolled it out, some pieces sort of naturally separated. Like, it reminded me of sometimes when I roll pie crust out and I don't want that to happen. Okay. In this case, I was like, oh, that's perfect. And I don't care what my crackers look like. You know, they don't need to be perfect little rectangles or squares. So I just sort of let the dough roll out as it wanted to. That meant some pieces broke off toward the end. And the others, I just baked as a big sheet and broke them after I cooked them. So then you're to the point of the drying. And we had discussed last episode that this recipe says you can dry anywhere from two hours to overnight. So where did you fall on this drying time? I did both. So I did my first batch with the two hours. Very good. And I thought it would be kind of fun to do that and taste it and see if I wanted to make any changes or that kind of thing. The one thing that I did change is on my day two batch, I lowered the oven. It says 350 degrees, and mine got a little browner and crispier than I would have liked. So my overnight batch, I cooked at 325, whereas my two-hour batch, I cooked at 350 as stated in the recipe. But other than that, I honestly didn't notice a huge difference in the two batches between the one that sat out for two hours and the one that sat out overnight. Okay. And I think one thing we had said last episode when we introduced this, we liked these kind of more general guidelines. This is a person who kind of understands, hey, maybe you're going to bake these off the same day. Maybe you're not going to get to them until the next day. And that's how it was for me. Mine did sit out overnight. I think the drying time I note was actually 19 hours of drying time. So almost a full 24. Okay. I would say the dough at that point was dry, but not crispy. I ended up baking mine for about 25 to 30 minutes. I had one pan that was just a little bit thicker than the other, and I went a little bit longer on that one. Okay. And mine, I pulled right at the 20 minutes. And like I said, my first batch on day one was a little darker than I would have liked. Okay. So on day two, I lowered it to 325, and I still did 20 minutes. And I thought visually those were a little bit prettier. They weren't, you know, they didn't have the, you know how those seeds can sometimes get a little dark. Yes. And, you know, this is another issue, too. When uh, when you are baking it, you are flipping it over kind of halfway through. And as you were just mentioning that when you were rolling this out, you didn't get kind of perfect roll. They were breaking off a little. I had that happen when I flipped it over as careful as I was. And I just thought, you know what? This is like an artisan-looking cracker. I'm not going to get too upset about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I like that about homemade things. That way people know you didn't, you know, buy it at the co-op and <laughs> – in a beautiful plastic bag that kept everything perfectly in shape. You know, they can see that, no, I made this at home. And so, yeah, mine, when I flipped it over about halfway through, I've been saying I baked it for 20 minutes. That's the first bake. Then you remove it from the oven, you flip it, as you were saying, and then you peel the baking paper off the back and then return it for another 10 minutes until fully dry, crisp, and golden around the edges. And that's where... right. You know, I think that in my first batch at 350, maybe I should have pulled it at like seven minutes or eight minutes instead of at 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would just watch it too. I think especially on those edges. Again, I I mentioned last episode, this reminded me of all the ingredients for my granola. And it had a baking issue like that as well, which is around the edges where it's very thin. Some of those seeds and nuts, very tiny, start to get a little too black. But you can also just hack those off when you take it out of the oven. Well, and it's so funny that you mentioned it had the same ingredients as your granola because I gave this, of course, to my husband and my daughter. And my husband's comment was, is this flat granola? Yeah. (laughs) Did you roll out a recipe of granola? (laughs) I know. And I thought, oh, isn't that funny? You know, it didn't 
it didn't at all occur to me like granola because I guess my granola is more sweet and this was definitely more savory yeah. to me. But I thought that was funny that he picked up on that. I didn't even tell him it was crackers or anything. I just said, hey, try this. The other great thing about this recipe is we talked last week about traveling with baked goods and going through TSA. Mm. And crackers are certainly nothing I would ever put on my list of things to travel with. I mean, I think of them as being crumbly and messy and, you know, all that kind of thing. But I was getting ready to leave on a trip and I had just made these and I thought, what the heck? And I threw them in a Ziploc bag. These crackers traveled so well. I could not believe it. Oh, yeah. When I got to my destination, they were still in large chunks. There were very few crumbs. And it was so great to have in the hotel room. You know, when you wake up in the morning and maybe before you go to breakfast, you want a little something and these are healthy. And they were just a great way to start out the day. Yeah, they are incredibly healthy. And I think that is one I think that's one reason they're called life-changing. We alluded to this last episode as well. But I did a little research into the nutrition on these crackers, and you're going to be blown away by how healthy they are. So, I mean, from the pumpkin seeds, you're getting fiber, calcium, magnesium, antioxidants. Sunflower seeds have got vitamin E and selenium. The chia has fiber, magnesium, phosphorus, omega-3 fatty acids. Flax has got protein, more fiber, omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants, Sesame seeds have zinc, selenium, vitamin B6, vitamin E, copper, iron. They support your immune system. I mean, oh my <laughs> they gosh. are chock full of all kinds of great things. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, what a great thing to have with you on a road trip when you need a little energy, you need a little boost. Store really well. I think the recipe says you can keep them fresh for like three weeks. Mine are certainly still going strong after, you know, this week. I loved the flavor as well. Yeah, ours were going strong after a week. The only reason I don't know if they would last three weeks is because we ate them all. And my husband had a really interesting comment. My first batch was thinner than my second batch. You know, I think I, I really made an effort on the first batch. And with the second batch, I, I don't know, I wasn't as careful rolling it out. And he asked me, oh, these are thicker. Did you do that on purpose? I said, eh, not really. I think I was just being lazy. I said, which one do you like better? And he said, well, it depends on what I'm going to put on top of them. Yeah. He said, for peanut butter and jelly, I want the thicker ones. But for cheese, I want the yeah. thinner ones. And I thought, oh, so it really does have a lot of versatility. You can yeah. shape these the way that you want, depending on what you're going to do with them. And I made the fig version, which I absolutely loved. I had a little bit of an issue with the anise or anise. I only had star anise. Have you ever tried to bash the seeds out of one of those, Andrea? <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Uh-uh. I have anise powder. I have powdered. Yes, and I just didn't. And so after about 10 minutes of frustration with my mortar and pestle, I pulled out my fennel. So mine was a fig oh. and fennel and black pepper. I thought that was a very similar taste, also with another kind of seed there. Oh, yeah. Loved that version. The one thing I would caution on that is the figs were sticky. And as you are scoring that, the tip of your knife can get a little bit stuck there as you're cutting around it. So not a big deal, but you're going to, again, have those uneven shapes and, and the knife's going to kind of drag to one side as you're trying to cut through your fig. But they cooked up so excellent. I think your idea with the blue cheese or the gorgonzola with that fig cracker, it was dynamite. It was also dynamite with like a hard, really nice Parmesan or Pecorino. Mm -hmm. Everyone in my family loved these. And I have to say I was a bit surprised because they – skewed so healthy I didn't think my kids were going to naturally go for it but they really did yeah they were lovely they were so professional looking also yeah I think if you are doing any kind of appetizers cheese tray and you brought out these crackers you would change the life of your guests for sure 
Yeah, they had such an artisan look about them, I agree. So many, many thanks to your friend Angelique, who pointed us in the direction of these life-changing crackers <laughs> and to mynewroots.org for sharing the recipe. We just couldn't be more thrilled. Okay, up this week, switching from... Life-changing? <laughs> well, I was thinking more like switching from super healthy to... Not so much. Uh, We're looking at some homemade Pop-Tarts, people. I got to be honest. Pop-Tarts is one of Stefan's pixie foods. She loved it as a kid. I was always entranced by it because my mother never bought them. Oh, yeah. As I would say, you know, Pop-Tarts were for rich people. That was not us. (laughs) Well, that's definitely one of the reasons they're a pixie food for me. We never got them. Like, that was my cool friend who had them, right? Yeah, the, the lack of having them made them even more intriguing, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, especially as a child. So we picked a recipe from the Pioneer Woman, and of course that's Reed Drummond, but this particular recipe is by Summer Collier, who is one of the guest authors on her website. She claims it's going to be better than any store-bought toaster pastry you've ever tasted. What I like about this recipe is it has a lot of pick-up-at-the-grocery-store ingredients. Yes. So it starts with two whole refrigerated pre-made pie crusts. If you want to make your own pie crust, absolutely go ahead and do that. But if you're thinking, you know, I want to do this and I don't have a lot of time and I'm just going to pick up some pie crust from the grocery store, I say go for it. You know, I'm actually really intrigued with that because I have not purchased English pre-made pastry. So this is actually going to be a nice learning experience for me. The brand here is called Just Roll and I'm going to give it a try. And I have also never purchased pre-made pastry. Only just, it's just, again, it's just not something that I've ever done. Yeah. So I have heard that Trader Joe's has a real good one. So I'm going to see if I can pick theirs up and try it. Okay, excellent. The next ingredient is half a cup of fruit jam, any variety, plus a little bit more for the icing. I think I will probably use that brand I've mentioned before, Bon Maman, I think it is, because I like their jars. (laughs) I know. They have that really cute red and white gingham top, don't they? Yes. And, and their jars are reusable. <laughs> well, I know that I have about half a jar of black currant jam, which is one of my favorite flavors, a huge English flavor. Oh. So I'm going to try that, although that's already skewing these Pop-Tarts more artisanal than the classic strawberry frosted of my childhood. But I want to round up that jam. So the jam, you're going to mix with some cornstarch, and that's going to be your filling. Of course, you're then going to put it into the pie crust, and then you're going to do a egg to seal the edges after you bake them off. Make a frosting with some powdered sugar, a little bit of heavy cream, and then some sprinkles. Or in my case, I think I'm going to use some sparkling sugar that I have in my pantry. Oh, pretty. Yeah, I've actually got some sprinkles from like holiday cookies, so I'm going to use those as well. All right. Well, I'm very excited about this recipe. And listeners, I am really hoping that you will bake along with us. And remember, we'll have a link to both of these recipes in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 124, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as our Facebook group, Preheated. That was the life-changing crackers from mynewroots.org and the homemade Pop-Tarts from the Pioneer Woman. Stefan, you and I, like so many of our listeners, love taking cooking classes. Oh, yeah. In fact, you and I spent a memorable few hours my last visit to London making puff pastry at the Bread Ahead class, and we even taught our own preheated pie-making class last summer. That's right. Cooking classes are available all over the world and can range in length from a few hours to a few days, and the topics are so far-reaching. 
Whether you want to learn to make toothsome tortellini or perfect pie crust, there's probably someone out there who can teach you how. And increasingly, it looks like people are booking vacations around these types of multi-day courses. In fact, according to the travel industry website, TTRA, food tourism is one of the top travel trends of 2019. Whew, that was tough. <laughs> top travel trends. <laughs> and it shows no sign of slowing down. This is great news for foodie tourists since many hotels, cruise ships, and tour operators are offering cooking classes or experiences to attract these types of travelers. I remember at the Bread Ahead course, many of their participants were just visiting London and they wanted to spend a few hours indulging their passion for baking. So in the spirit of summer vacation planning, we thought it would be fun to highlight some of the amazing courses that are available all over the world. Let's start in Italy, a dream destination for many people and definitely on most foodies' bucket lists. Now, there are certainly a huge amount of pasta and wine experiences to be had in Italy. But on Uncover Travels, nine-day culinary vacation in Sicily, you'll also whip up pastries and chocolate. And since you'll be riding bikes between your accommodation, you'll have a nice way to burn off all those calories. Oh, that sounds like my perfect vacation, bikes and baking. Here's another appealing one. In southern France, you can try your hand at French Patisserie at the six-day course offered by Largantua. You'll make choux pastry for eclairs, religieuses, Paris Brest, Saint-Honneur or Croquembouche, creme patisserie, short crust and sweet pastry, tarts, macarons, mille fruits, bavarot, tartatin, croissants or puff pastry, and bread or brioche. Andrea, you just flew through those like a pro. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you took French in middle school. <laughs> the things we learn in seventh grade. And Andrea, didn't you take a short course when you were in France last year? Oh, yes, I did. Now, luckily, the chef, although he lived in Paris, was from Houston, Texas, so oh. <laughs> I was able to understand him. So I took an amazing food walking tour, and it was from a company called La Cuisine Paris, and I selected this particular tour because it started in the Marché Maubert, which is one of the oldest street markets in Paris, mm. and I really wanted that experience of buying local produce and local ingredients and talking to the vendors, but I was so intimidated by those French vendors. Mais pourquoi? That's French for but why? You're not the only one who took French in middle school. <laughs> That's why, though. That's that French language. It's beautiful, but it is so intimidating. And I only have a few years of middle school and high school French. So on our tour, the chef led us through the market and spoke his beautiful French. And he was visiting all of his favorite vendors. So I really felt like we were welcomed by the locals. They were happy to see us. They were so excited about sharing the things that they had to sell. And if I recall correctly, you made a seafood dish, vegetables, and a pear almond tart for your leisurely three-course hours-long lunch with wine. And my favorite tip that you passed on to me was how to zest a citrus fruit. Zesters up. Yeah, best tip ever. <laughs> now, thinking back on that course does remind me, if your language skills are rusty like mine, be sure to check and make sure the instruction is offered in English or your native language. Many of our listeners are avid bread bakers, so I want to share one of the classes on my bucket list there's two women. One is from Olympia, Washington, and the other is from Mercer Island in Seattle. And they team together to open a wood-fired baking class in residence called Pilgrims au Pain, and it's in southwest France. Ooh. Pat Haynes is the baker, and her five-day course is where you can learn to make beautiful baguettes, fresh focaccia, croissants, pretzels, and bagels. 
I mean, I know I say this a lot, but dare I add this to the preheated road trip itinerary? I know, I think we must. Another destination, a Cypriot friend, recently told me about a course in her country of Cyprus that not only teaches you how to make the world-famous halloumi cheese, one of my favorites, but also the traditional Cypriot pastries like olive and cheese pies, as well as breads. And the bonus of this five-day course at Aperante Agroturisma is that they allow children. So if you have a budding baker in your house, this could be the adventure of a lifetime. We've done several cooking courses with our kids, most notably in Morocco and in Spain, and they've always been a highlight of our vacations. These trips we're talking about are very extravagant adventures for sure. And for many of our listeners, it's going to be a once in a lifetime kind of trip. But fear not, there are many cooking classes that range from a few hours to a long weekend. And there's probably one near you. One of my favorites, which you've heard me talk about extensively on our show, is the pie classes from Kate McDermott from Art of the Pie. She offers a four-day class called Pie Camp that I attended and learned so much. And I want to add, I actually lost three pounds while I attended. (laughs) What? (laughs) Magic. (laughs) It is. It was like magic. But she also offers a four-hour day camp in Port Angeles, Washington, for those of you interested in a shorter time commitment or a smaller price tag. I noticed recently that her son, Duncan, has been taking the lead on those day camps, and I can highly recommend him. He also taught at the pie camp that I attended, and he's an excellent instructor. And many grocery stores and food stores like Whole Foods, Williams-Sonoma, and Sur La Table offer classes on a specific topic, so be sure to check with your favorite brands locally or while you're planning a trip. For example, I know the Good Housekeeping Institute here in London, as well as Waitrose grocery stores, offer classes year-round that range from vegan baking to Thai curries. Likewise, we know listeners love many of the Momofuku milk bar recipes, and their stores in New York, D.C., and L.A. offer tons of fun classes, including how to make their famous birthday cake and their one-of-a-kind compost cookies. I stumbled across that Good Housekeeping Institute you're talking about last time I visited you, and I was so tempted to pop in there. Yeah. I have to also mention how much I've loved taking classes with Joy the Baker in New Orleans. Joy created the Bakehouse NOLA in the historic Bywater neighborhood, and she's perfectly captured the essence of just visiting a friend and dropping in and doing some baking. It's very informal. It's very relaxed, very fun. Yes, and she really inspired us to do our own pies and Prosecco class last summer. Yes. Okay, Andrea, what's next? All right, this one really caught my eye. Down in Miami, the good folks at Lulu's Nitrogen Ice Cream have been known to host an exclusive class before they open their doors. Do call ahead and see if they're offering this one. But if they are, you'll learn how to make your own waffle cones and freeze your own ice cream with a splash of liquid nitrogen. Whew, that sounds like a cooking and a science class. Andrea, we've been talking about cooking classes as part of a vacation, but don't forget they can also be a fun way to celebrate a birthday, a wedding, a baby shower, an anniversary, or other milestone events. Years ago, my husband and I did a Thanksgiving cooking class at Seattle restaurant Palisade that we still talk about. And I remember loyal listener Jeannie's bachelorette party was a cooking class at Seattle's Whole Food Market. Oh, that's right. I remember setting that up. You know, cooking or baking together is such a fun way to spend time with friends. And it's also a great way to interact with new people and get to know someone really quickly. Mm. You can learn so much about someone just by watching them bake, don't you think? Absolutely. 
Final thought, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the chocolate ecstasy tour I took in London recently. This one was a fabulous mix of history, exercise, and chocolate. Be sure to listen into next week's episode for my interview with the tour founder, Jennifer Earle. Oh, I can't wait for that one. And listeners, just like in last week's episode on fun foodie factory tours, we know there are so many local food classes all over the world. If you have a favorite in your town, maybe you run the favorite in your town, please let us know. Drop us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post to our Facebook group Preheated. And please share the cooking classes that you're taking near or far. Remember to tag hashtag preheatedpod and hashtag cookingwithclass on Instagram or share your Facebook pictures on our Facebook group Preheated. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning. And next week, we'll see if homemade Pop-Tarts scratched my pixie food itch or just had me running to the American food store for the real deal. Then we'll introduce a DIY power bar using one of the UK's most popular ingredients, passion fruit. And I'll tell you all about my recent trip to India during the Globetrotting Gourmet. Thanks, as always, to Anne-Marie Russell for providing our theme music. You can find more of Anne-Marie at annemarierussell.com and on iTunes and Amazon. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and also consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.